0: let's begin with a word of prayer uh, Lord we're grateful for all that you have done for us Lord thank you for uh, your many blessings that you you bestow on us on a regular basis things we totally do not deserve uh, Lord as we uh, forget you as we neglect you as we treat your word lightly um, Lord you still are faithful and you stand by us and we're grateful for that so uh, thank you lord we count now as we turn to your word would you be Please to send your spirit to help us to understand, uh, to apply the word to our hearts and our minds in ways that we might not first think of. But Lord, Holy Spirit, you can make it alive. It is uh, your word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, living and active. So Lord, would you bring it to bear on us? And uh, Father, we want to pray for the folks out on the East Coast who are uh, suffering from um, the effects of Hurricane Ida, Including the power outages and the flooding and all of those things, Lord, there have been many uh, uh, tragic stories of destruction. And so we pray that you would um, enable your church to be the salt and light of the earth in the midst of uh, such grave need and uh, help her respond well, we pray. Uh, Lord, again, we ask, would you please weigh with us now as we turn to your word? In Christ's name, amen. So in 1972, uh, at Stanford University, they did a study on 50 children. Uh, The age range was about three to five years old. It has become known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. And it is uh, quite a thing. What they did was they brought children into a room uh, with no distractions and they set before them a marshmallow and they said, "Uh, you can have this marshmallow, but if you can wait 15 minutes, we'll give you two. And so they left the room and let the children do what they were going to do to see how they, they responded to it. And then they tried it in different variations. They had some distractions, and there were some things the children to play with, that kind of stuff. But they, they did this experiment, and the way the children responded was amazing. There's videos. You can see them. There's one kid just kind of grimacing like this at the, at the marshmallow like he's mad at it, trying to fight the urge to eat it because if he just waits 15 minutes, he can get two. So the report itself described it like this. It said, they made up quiet songs, hid their head in their arms, pounded the floor with their feet, fiddled playfully and teasingly with a single bell, verbalized the contingency. In other words, kept saying, if I wait 15 minutes, I get two. They prayed to the ceiling and so on. In one dramatically effective self-distraction technique, after obviously experiencing much agitation, a little girl rested her head sat limply, relaxed herself, and pre- proceeded to found sound, uh, fall sound asleep. So that was the study, is how would these children react? If you can have one, but if you wait, you can have two. And, and, and how did they do? Well, they did a follow-up study on these children. This wasn't the end of the experiment. Uh, 10 years later in 1988, they, um, they found out that the preschool children who delayed gratification longer In the self-imposed delay paradigm, were described by more than uh, ten years later by their parents and adolescents as adolescents who were significantly more competent. So the children who could delay the gratification were described as adolescents who were significantly more competent. A second study done in 1990 showed that that ability to delay gratification correlated with higher SAT scores. And they kept going. There were there were more studies after that, but the point is. Can we wait for something good or do we want it now? Can we hold off on that? Can we see the good thing that's coming and say, I'm going to wait for it. I'm going to just control myself because that's what Paul is talking about this morning in, in his, uh, his next portion of his personal section is that sentence for me to, die, or to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's saying what waits ahead of me is great, but there's something good I can do now too. And so can we delay that gratification? And so that's what we're gonna see this morning is, can we do what's necessary now, knowing what's coming and be patient and wait for that? So that's what it starts, that's where he goes with this. Now I started in verse 18, because first of all, it's a terrible chapter break. Uh, One of those really bad, or I mean a verse break. Uh, The first part of the sentence is from the last section. And then yes, and I will rejoice is from this section but it actually serves a good purpose because I think these two sections that are, are, are here are really tied together. They're very much related. So what, what Paul says in verse 18, what then only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaiming and in that I rejoice. So what we saw last week is what makes Paul most happy is that the gospel advances, that the gospel is preached, that people hear about Jesus Christ, whether they're doing it to insult him or out of pure joy, as long as Jesus is preached, that's great. And that's what he he says, and and, and for that, I will rejoice. That's why it breaks into the next section. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. As he's still thinking about the spread of the gospel, he's still thinking about the advance of the gospel, but now he's going to take it in a slightly different direction. So he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he starts out by, by counting on the fact that Philippians are praying for him. It, it's important to him that they are praying for him. We see in other places, in other epistles, where he, he commands people, please pray for me that I'll have an opportunity to preach the gospel. So part of his desire for the gospel to advance is the saints praying. Now, we could go into uh, probably a whole bunch of different sermon series on the, the concept of prayer. How, how does prayer work? Why does God call for prayer? God is omniscient; He knows all things. Do our prayers inform Him of something He wasn't una- or something He was unaware of? Well, it can't be. God is unchanging. Do our prayers make Him go? Well, I was going to do X, but now I'll do Y. Well, that can't be. So, if God is all knowing and unchanging, why does He command us to pray? Well, because what the Scriptures tell us over and over again is that through prayer He accomplishes things. That's the doctrine of compatibility. Human will, human effort, human desire is compatible with divine sovereignty, even though sometimes we think it might not be, and we have a hard time reconciling it. So what we see in, in, in the scriptures is in some way, God uses the prayers of his saints to accomplish purposes. And so he asks us, he commands us to pray. And so Paul is looking at this and he's saying. He's talking about his deliverance and he says, I'm counting on you Philippians to be praying for me. Not so you'll feel better about yourself, but because it is through that that I will be delivered. It's through your prayers. God will use your prayers in some way that we may not understand. He will use your prayers for my deliverance. So the first thing he's looking for is prayer. The second thing he says is the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. The help of the spirit. Now, the spirit of Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. It is not Jesus' personal internal spirit. It is, it is the Holy Spirit. Now, why would I say that? Well, because Jesus promised at the end of Luke, he said, stay in, stay in uh, Jerusalem until the promise of the Father comes upon you. And then at the beginning of Acts, he, he says the same thing. The promise of the Father will come. And what he sends then is the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter two, the spirit is poured out on the church the promise of the Father was the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also said, I will send the Spirit upon you. And so it's Jesus' Spirit because he sends the Spirit upon the church. So that's why Paul says here, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is because it is Jesus Christ who is sending the Spirit to him to do these things. Now, I really want to get into Trinitarian theology here and talk about the the three persons and how the Spirit is an individual person, but also one, but that's a tangent. That's not the main part of the sermon. So he's counting on two things the prayers of the saints and the work of the Holy Spirit for his deliverance. That's what he's looking forward to. In other words, Paul is totally looking for God to deliver him from this. It's God's work. He wouldn't ask the saints to pray if he didn't think God was going to do it. And he's counting on the Spirit coming and doing that work. So that's his goal. That's his, his promise, his hope, his, his focus is on the fact that. This will be his deliverance. So here's a question. It says, this will turn out for my deliverance. I want you to pray and I'm expecting the spirit to work so that this will turn out for my my deliverance. What's this? What will turn out for his deliverance? It's an odd phrase. You would think it would be the prayers of the saints and the spirit, but those are instrumental so that this will turn out for my deliverance. So what's going on there? Well, first thing to notice is deliverance. The word there is soteria, which is where we get the word soteriology, which is the study of salvation. So another way to translate this is so that this will turn out for my salvation. But I think in the context, he's talking about getting out of jail. So deliverance is probably right. But the phrase there, this will turn out for my deliverance, is a quote from the Old Testament. And it's a quote, word for word, I think it's about six or eight words long in, in uh, Greek, word for word from the Greek Old Testament. And it comes from a surprising place, one you wouldn't expect. It's from the book of Job. Job chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. So if you want to flip back there real quick, the beginning of that chapter, Job is complaining about his friends. He's, he's kind of rebuking his friends because they're giving him horrible advice. And when he finally starts talking about something other than his friend's bad advice is verse 15. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This is my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. So Paul, as he's in jail, as he's, he's being arrested, he's waiting to, to, stand before, um, to stand before Caesar. What's on his mind is the book of Job. I think he sees himself in a very similar situation. How can those two be similar? Well, look at Job's position. He is suffering, and he's got three friends who are coming to him and saying, well, you must have done something wrong. You you had to have messed up. You you have to have have sinned in some way, or God wouldn't do this to you. So his friends are accusing him falsely of sin. And the book of Job is Job saying, No, I have not sinned. I've not done anything wrong. And what else he's doing is he's saying, I seek an audience with my judge. I want the Lord to hear my case. I have not done anything wrong. I want to plead my case before him. He's the judge. He'll judge me right. So that's why he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. My hope is that even though I die, I would get to stand before God and explain to him what's going on, that I may argue my ways to his face. So he's falsely accused, he's suffering, and he's waiting to see the judge. That's the situation for Job, and that's exactly what's going on with Paul. So you remember what happened was back in Acts 20, 21, Paul has traveled to Jerusalem, he's taken a couple of folks into the temple with him to do um, a, a vow, to fulfill a vow they've taken, and while he's there, he's falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. It's a lie. It's not true. He hasn't done that, but he's, he's accused of that. And there's this huge uproar and the unrighteous are all around him, very angry at him. And so he starts to preach. He starts to tell him his story. And he gets to the point where Jesus says, now go to the Gentiles and they lose it again. And so he's taken before the Sanhedrin and before the Sanhedrin, he's falsely accused. And then he's hauled off to Caesarea. And in Caesarea, they follow him up there and he's falsely accused. And so finally, he appeals to Caesar. And that's where he's at now is he's in Rome. He's waiting to see Caesar. So in a similar way, Paul has been surrounded by evildoers, by liars, falsely accused, and he's waiting to see the judge. Now, the difference here is in Paul's case, the judge is one of the wicked. It's Caesar, for heaven's sake. But but that's what Paul is thinking is he's looking at this. And so that theme, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Listen for that as we go through the rest of this verse. That idea that though he slay me, I will hope in him is going to kind of echo through. You can see that it's kind of soaked into to Paul's brain as he's approaching this. So here he goes. He, he says, um, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. So he's telling the Philippians, look, I'm about to go see Caesar. I'm about to face Caesar, and it's my hope and my expectation. It's my desire. I believe that God has a purpose for me. He has told me that I must stand before kings, and so I trust that the Lord has a purpose for me. It's my hope and my eager expectation that I won't be ashamed, that I won't come in and make a fool out of myself, that I won't be somehow dismissed as I've been previously dismissed in these other trials, that the lies will fall away. It's my hope and expectation that I will not be put ashamed, or put to shame, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. As I stand before Caesar, as I offer my, my excuse, my, my apologia, my, my defense of the gospel, it's my hope that Christ will be honored in my body. And then the twist, whether by life or death. If Caesar kills me because of what I've said, Christ will be honored because I've stood for the gospel and if I live, if he pardons me, I live for the gospel. So this is the thought that Paul has is he, he knows he's, he's going to be vindicated by God, whether he dies or whether he lives. Just like Job, though he slay me, I will stand before his face. He's counting on that. He's looking forward to that. So the next verse, verse 21, one of the most memorable in the book of Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not only one of the most memorable, it's one of the most jarring. Rhetorically, the way it's written in Greek, it's, it's said in a way that is intended to be memorable. It, Paul said that so that the people would remember it, so it would be heard and understand. It's not just one great sentence in the book of Philippians, it's his heart. It's in this section where Paul's reporting, this is what's happening to me. This is my hope, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so I want to use that as a frame to discuss the rest of this section. Now, let's start with the easy part, to die is gain. As a Christian, we know what that means. Paul goes on in the next verse, in verse 23, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better by far. To depart and be with Christ. If you die, Christian, where you go is into heaven and you're with Christ. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Your body goes into the ground to see corruption. That's from uh, Acts chapter two, when Peter is telling why Jesus is risen from the dead is because God promised his anointed would not see corruption. And then he goes, hey, look, we're standing right here. David's tomb is in the city. He's corrupted. He He has decayed. But Jesus rose from the dead because he won't see corruption. So that idea of seeing corruption here, he says, for me to... To die is gain. Our bodies go into the ground and they break down. Our spirit goes to heaven. Our spirit is in heaven with God. And that is better by far. So as good as this life is, when we pass away and we're in heaven with God, when we're in heaven with Jesus, that's better. It's, It's not a bad thing. But it's not the end state. We were not created to be disembodied souls floating around heaven. That's temporary. Where Paul is looking, where his desire is, is the resurrection. When our bodies, after they have corrupted, have been raised again, body and soul put back together, and then we're with Christ for eternity. So he says later in the book, he says that he hopes to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So it, it is better by far to get to the intermediate state but the ultimate state the, the very best one is the resurrection so don't get the idea that we're going to float around heaven playing harps wearing robes and, and making far side jokes um we've got something far better waiting for us as a matter of fact if you look in the book of uh, revelation the only time we hear departed souls speak is in revelation where the the um revelation six The souls of those who have been beheaded for this testimony cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before we will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So even those departed souls who are with Christ in heaven are waiting, how long? So it's good, it's better by far, but it's not the end state. So if anyone threatens you with death, they're doing you a favor. You're You're gonna usher me into the presence of my savior. That's better by far. So here's the question: Why not take the marshmallow now? Why, why not seek to die now? Isn't it better to die? Is it better by far, isn't it? So why don't we get saved and then I'll commit suicide? That, that's, taken the, that's taken the one mush, or mushroom, <laughs> one mushroom, the one marshmallow. That's jumping over and saying, "I want immediate gratification." Paul's not done with this yet. For me to die is gain. That's, that makes sense. But he goes on and he says, for me to live is Christ. What does he mean when he says for me to live is Christ? What, what do you think of when you think of that phrase? You think, well, I'm supposed to live like a Christian. I'm going to live a good moral life. And, and that's Christ. Um, Mormons, by the way, largely and heavy beat on that front. front just to let you know. Um, besides, that's law and works. That's not grace. To say, I'm just going to be moral and upright, and that'll be great. That's not to live as Christ. To live as Christ is something more than that. So is it, I'm going to witness to Jesus, or witness uh, for Jesus to everybody. And that's what it means to live as Christ. Let me ask you, how are you doing on that? How's that going? Are you doing that? That maybe that's not what to live as Christ means. Coming to church every Sunday, well, nearly every Sunday, well, most Sundays, well, this Sunday, does that mean to live as Christ? Well, there's more to it than that. Now, those things that I said are all right and good. I'm not trying to dismiss them and say, don't do that. Live moral and upright lives do that. The Bible is full of admonitions to not sin. It, it is important to witness for Christ. It is important to share the faith that we have. And please come to church on Sunday. It's good for you. Um, it's good for your soul. What we need to look at is what does Paul define in this passage as living is Christ, to live as Christ? How does he define it? Because that's what we really want to do. So here's where he goes with it. Verse 22 If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. To live as Christ is to live in the f- flesh, and that means fruitful labor. So, what Paul has been doing is he's been advancing the gospel. Remember that from last week? That his passion is that the gospel advance. For him to live on in the flesh means I get to work to advance the gospel. People get to hear about Jesus through me. I have fruitful labor. So, to live, to, to say that living as Christ is to continue on doing the work that he's called you to do. The, the verse that I think of when I hear him say to live as Christ is Galatians 2, 20 and 21, For I have died and, and, and I, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's to live as Christ. Now that doesn't mean Paul's suspended from this and departed from it because he says the life i live christ is living in me i live this life right here he says for me to live or to to live is christ it's i am his disciple he has shaped who i am and i'm going to conform my life to who he is so what does that look like then what does that look like before we get there we have to answer one question the rest of verse 22 yet which i shall choose i cannot tell i am hard pressed between the two D- do i die which is far better and depart and be with christ or do i live and have fruitful labor and paul's response is i'm hard pressed between the two i want the marshmallow now but i want the marshmallow then and it's a struggle it's hard for me to, to live between those two what does he mean when he says, what I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell? Is he con- contemplating suicide? Is he saying, I'm going to go die on purpose? I don't think that's what he means. I think what he's saying is he, he's, he's torn between which one he's inclined to. Which one, is, which one do I feel is better? Which one shall I choose? Is not, am I going to kill myself or am I going to keep living? But which one is most appealing to me? And he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. They're, they're so good. How can it be? that he would be hard-pressed between departing and being with Christ, which would be better, or living on in the life in the flesh. Those two both are attractive to him. We need to understand what he means by to remain in the flesh, to, to live as Christ. So let's press on. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. For Paul to live is Christ for him to continue on in his life for the fruitful labor that he has before him is to focus on other people. His life in Christ is for the Philippians to live a life. That is Christ is to be focused on someone else, someone other than yourself to give, to, to, to put yourself out for that. Well, now, come on, Tim. Um, This was Paul, right? he's an apostle. He's a superhero of the faith, man. I can't be like him. He's got special faith, and I've just got barely any. That doesn't work. The beginning of 2 Peter starts like this. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So here's the apostle, the superhero of the faith, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ what you, what Paul has is available to you. Now it's not going to look like Paul, but don't look at him and go, well, he's superhero and I'm just a normal person. We can say, we can live like Paul. We can live that way where we're thinking other people are more important. In a few weeks, we're going to hear Paul tell us, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind, right? Paul is saying, same mind, same love, full accord, with me. Paul wants us to be like him. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. This is doable. This is achievable. This is not something reserved for the super saints. You can say, to live for me, to live as Christ. You can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can say that. That's available to you. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. So for us to continue on in the flesh, waiting for the day when he calls us home, means that we have fruitful labor by serving and looking out for the other person. Don't get sick of this message yet. It's coming up next week and the week after, and Paul is going to really drive it home. He's going to remind us that the other person is more important than you and call us to live that way. So begin to ask yourself, if you want to live that way that Paul is describing, if you want to live the life that is Christ, here's how you can begin to ask yourself to get your mind, which is available to you in Christ, how to get your mind wrapped around this. Ask yourself, in Christ... Who can I serve? Have you ever started that way? Who can I serve? Not what can I get out of this, but who can I serve in this? In Christ, how can I serve others? What ways can I do that? What can I do for somebody else? Do I desire to serve others? That's the big problem. Remember the prayer a while ago that where your heart is, I pray that your love may abound more and more. You will do what you desire. Do you desire to serve anybody else? Mm-hmm. Only people I like. Thank you. Um, if, that, if, if, if you don't desire that, don't forget this mind is available to you in Christ. Asking him for it. Jesus, would you make me desire other, to serve other people? Are you concerned with anybody else's progress in the faith? Has that ever bothered you? You know, I I haven't seen this person really growing in their faith much lately. I wonder if there's anything I can do to serve them, to encourage them. Can I share something with them that might help spur them on? Have you ever been concerned with anybody else's joy? You know, they look really sad lately. Is there anything I can do to encourage them, to talk with them, to share the, the things that Christ has been doing in me? This is Paul's attitude. For him to live as Christ means, fruitful labor means, considering other people is more important than himself. He says, look, Philippians, the only reason I'm interested in sticking around is because I know it's good for you. I know it'll benefit you. I'd rather depart and be with Christ, but I'll wait, I'll hang on. So he reminds them, you Philippians, I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's calling the Philippians into that same lifestyle. Pray for me. Think not of yourself. Think of me. Pray for me. And as you think about me and you pray for me, I'm going to pour myself out so I can be a blessing to you. It's mutual. It feeds. It it wraps up upon itself. I know that through your prayers. I know that you're praying for me. And I know that those prayers will be effective and that I will be delivered. They will be my deliverance. Write out a prayer list. Write down people that you come in contact, whether regularly. Write it down. Write their name. Talk to that person and find out what they need. How could they grow? What can I be praying for them? Be intentional. Have a face in mind when you're praying. Pray for that person. Prayer is a wonderful way to think of others before yourself. You sit down with your Bible, and and before you even start reading, you, you start thinking of other people. To live is Christ. Join a prayer group. We have an e-news that goes out with the prayers that come in on, on the communication cards. Sign up for that. Today on the communication part, card, put that you'd like to be part of that, that group. And then pray for them. It doesn't have to be an elaborate 20-minute prayer for each prayer request. You can get the e-news and you can go, okay, so-and-so needs this. Lord, would you? And, and take a couple, just a couple of minutes and pray through it. Pray for other people. That will begin to change that heart of yours outward and looking towards other people. How can I pray for them? Because then once you start praying for them, you're thinking of them more. And then once you start thinking of them, of them more, you bump into them at church. Hey, how are you doing? Because you don't say it, but you're thinking, because I've been praying for you. How's it going? And suddenly you find yourself being more interested in other people. You, that mind is yours in Christ. Pray. So, more from the context that this is in, this is beyond just the verses we're looking at this morning. Remember how the the book began. The Philippians heard about Paul's imprisonment, so they sent Epaphroditus to find out how he was doing. One of the greatest things you can do to encourage somebody else is be physically present with them. To sit down with them and talk with them and be present. Not be on the phone, um, looking at your watch, but to just sit and say, how are you doing? And listen to the stories. Be physically present. The the, the Philippians had sent Epaphroditus, and it was tremendously inconvenient. He almost died, but they did it anyway. And when they sent him, they sent him to to find out how Paul was doing. But they also sent something with him. They sent money. They, They sent a means of support for Paul while he was in prison. So send somebody money if that's what they need. What they might need is not cash. They might need your time or your effort, or something along those lines. The money is just a tangible, a physical way to measure. I'm here to support you. What can I do for you? This is having that mind of Christ. This is to live as Christ. To consider others as more important than yourselves. Our church right now is going through a transition. We've had a lot of changes lately. We have some gaps. We have some holes. Like this morning, I didn't do that on purpose. I really didn't think we had anybody for children's church. But Teresa stepped up and took it up. There are things we need to get done in this church and we need people to do it. So that's one easy way to to begin to connect. You know the needs that are here in this this church. There's one place where you can start thinking beyond yourself, looking to others. How can I serve somebody else? But you guys, it's so much more than that. It goes way beyond that. How can you serve your neighbor? Uh, And I'm talking about your physical next door neighbor or the person across the street. Have you talked to them? Have you met them? Do you know them? Maybe they need something. It's it's that taking that step beyond yourself. And by the way, I I want you to know I'm preaching to myself because I'm horribly shy and don't like doing this. And so I need to hear this as well. So don't think, you know, I'm I'm the rock star up here. I'm telling myself this as much as I'm telling you. We need to look beyond step out of comfort zones and see how can we serve somebody else? What is all the end of this? Where does this all come to in Paul's mind? Verse 26. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul is seeking his deliverance, not so he can get back to business as usual, or you know it's, it's uncomfortable living in Rome, or he's, he's looking forward to leaving his prison heading to Philippi and visiting him again. Why? So that they can glory in Christ Jesus. The result of all of this, this outward focus, this thinking of somebody else, this this providing for somebody else, this caring for somebody else, this praying for somebody else is not, I'm just such a great person. You know, let me tell you how how really wonderful I am. Um, It is, Jesus Christ is that great. And and we're going to get more of this because where Paul's going to take us is this mind is yours in Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. We're going to get the the ultimate, not even the penultimate, the ultimate example of humility in Jesus Christ. If you do this, if you begin to live this way, you will glory in him because you go, that was not me. (laughs) I don't do those kind of things. Jesus, thank you for making me that kind of person. So this is, this is going to be a refrain. We're going to hear it again and again. Buckle up. Um, if, if I step on toes, maybe toes needed to be stepped. Um, believe me, I've got a blank spot on the top of my shoe. I've stepped on my own a number of times in this. We, we're all going through this together, but we can do that. There are opportunities in the church. There are needs that need to be met. Um, Big needs for the the facility. We're going to plant some plants along the back fence to hide the junkyard. That dirt is rock solid. Um, uh, Dave Bohan has been working out there and it's just, you just kind of chip at it. We're going to need help planting these things. It's going to be hard. You can serve that way. That's easy to do. Um, We have a need for somebody to help Jeannie get to and from church. Um, her family has moved to New Jersey. She's, she's remaining in her home. She needs help getting back and forth. The, the uh, sestons have been huge a blessing to her. Thank you guys, but they're going on vacation. So here's a real need. Jeannie needs a ride. Paul's in prison. They send him Epaphroditus. Jeannie needs a ride. Who are we going to send to him? her? We have a, a gap in our children's church ministry right now. If we have children's Sunday school, we don't have anybody to lead that. There are needs in the church. Can you step up and do them? Can you reach beyond yourself? I'm not trying to guilt you into it. I'm offering you opportunities. Here's places you could serve. Here's things you could do. When you see somebody at church, could you take them out for lunch? Just get to know them. That's that presence. Just spend some time with them. And you don't have to worry about, I don't have all sorts of witty and clever conversation to bring up. It'll take care of itself. It usually does. But we need to start looking beyond and thinking of other people. And you know what happens in a community when everybody is looking beyond and thinking of other people? Nobody loses. Everybody gains because we're all looking out for each other. That's the picture that Paul's beginning to paint here. We're going to flesh it out next week. And then um, the following week, we get to Jesus as our example for that. So let that bake in a little bit. Let that stew. Think about that. Pray about that this week. Lord, am I doing it? How can I do it? I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't want to do that. Lord, would you change that in me and see if you don't get the mind of Christ in this? Let's pray. Lord, this is terrifying to me personally as I have to go out of my comfort zone. I have to uh, think of um, the needs of others before I think about the comfort of myself. And... Lord, this is a beautiful picture that Paul is painting for us of a community that all think like that. That would assuage my fear of talking to the other, of spending time with the other, of of visiting the other, is to know the other is reaching out to. So Lord, we pray that you would cause this to be, this, this mind that is ours in Christ, would you cause this to be a reality in our church? Not that we would bend inward and just protect and care for each other, but Lord, that we would have this compelling community, this group of people who care and love each other, so that as we take the word out, they might come in and see something living and vibrant, that they may see Jesus Christ. For us to live is Christ. And I pray, Lord, that that would be a hallmark of who we are. And yes, this in Christ's name. Amen.